Thanks for listening to In 16 Years of Endometriosis. I'm Amy Corfelli, and I hope my podcast will support and empower you. There's two kinds of episodes, my chats with my best friend, Brittany, and my interviews with renowned excision surgeons, subject experts, and endometriosis advocates worldwide. My podcast is a platform for different voices and points of view. Each person expresses their opinions. Their participation on my podcast doesn't mean that I'm endorsing them or that I always agree with them. The information presented here is educational information only and not medical advice. Always consult your qualified physician before making any changes to your treatment plan. Today I'm speaking with my friend and fellow advocate, Kimitha Redman. Kimitha is a family nurse practitioner serving low-income, uninsured patients in her area. Before her nursing career, she was a research consultant with a background in brain injury research. Her goals are to increase provider awareness of healthcare inequity, become a leader in bridging the gap between research and clinical practice in underserved communities, and empower people to make well-informed health decisions for themselves and their families. Being diagnosed with stage 4 endometriosis in 2021 after over 20 years of countless incidents of dismissal, gaslighting, bias, and incompetency has fueled her own diligence as a healthcare provider and educator. Kimother prioritizes high-quality, trauma-informed care for all. Kimother is also the vice president of Peach Corpse which is on a mission to help those with PCOS, endo, adeno, and chronic conditions. Definitely check out their amazing work and be aware that they are having an in-person conference in New York in May of 2024, which I'll be attending and Kimother too. So we hope to see you there. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a public health researcher turned nurse practitioner. And I am really passionate about health equity, medical literacy, and informed consent. And it seemed just like a natural transition for me to go from public health research, where I was able to do a lot of work um, with population health and and, um, helping people just live healthier lives, but then transition to basically bridging the research with clinical practice so I can work more hands-on with people. And I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, I'm also a patient, aren't we all, in in some capacity. But for me specifically, I have stage four endometriosis. I also had fibroids. Um, I also have suspected adenomyosis and um, just a multitude of things that make life a little more complex. Kimother, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I want to let the audience know that we also discussed problems within the healthcare system. That's actually going to air as the final part of this three-part series with you because we didn't want people to have to wait for your amazing tips. So can you tell us, based on your insight as both a healthcare professional and an endometriosis patient, how can we have a more successful visit to the doctor's office? There are some things that we can do, even though it's uh, it's easy to feel helpless and feel like your efforts are in vain when we do try to see if we can kind of direct the care that we're receiving or at least be able to maximize what we can get accomplished in an appointment with a provider. The main thing that I try to encourage people to do is to plan a bit and think out kind of what they want out of the appointment. You as the patient are 100% the most valuable form of information in that appointment. You are the key to being able to help that provider meet the goals that of that appointment that you dictate. But it does help to ask yourself a few questions like, what do I want out of this appointment? What answers am I looking for? Asking ourselves these questions is a very easy way for us to at least think about coming in with some intention. A lot of times I'll I'll have a patient come in and they only just give me a symptom, but I have nothing else. 
I don't know what they hope to get out of this appointment. Is it medication that you're looking for? Are you looking for me to figure out the cause of this symptom? So it helps me a lot if before the appointment, the patient has given it some thought of what they want out of it. And if they can even document a summary of really what they've been going through so that I have something to to work with, or at least you have something to work with so that once you get in front of the provider, you have some, some notes. Now, I've tried this in multiple different ways, and I've learned, of course, the provider is not going to be able to read your 15-page summary of things that are going on in your life, and I, I totally get that. But knowing the limitations of the appointment, like the length of the appointment and really reasonably how much you can get out of the appointment, it really does help to have a bullet list of here's a summary of what I've been experiencing and these are the things I'm hoping to get out of this appointment. I think a strong summary of what a person is going through is one that includes a few key things. So a chief complaint, which basically is just the main reason for the visit, like what is the main problem that you're having? So for example, we can say, I have rectal pain with bowel movements. That's a chief complaint. Also a summary should include a history of some sort, but a history specific to that complaint. So for example, for the last six months, I have had rectal pain after bowel movements that lasts 20 to 30 minutes. And I would describe the pain as sharp, intermittent, and severe. Just that one sentence alone has given me so much um, good information. And I know that that can be intimidating to say like, oh man, well, I don't know if I can describe it. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, for us who deal with chronic pain, with multiple pain generators, it really is hard. It's, it is, it's hard, but it's, it's something that I challenge you to try doing is being able to describe what it is that you're experiencing with as great enough detail as, as you can. Definitely as part of that summary with describing the pain, uh, if it's pain, for example, that you're experiencing, when you tend to experience it, what symptoms uh, you tend to have along with it, like perhaps whenever you have that rectal pain, it also is accompanied by lower abdominal pain, nausea, sometimes vomiting. It tends to, to occur the week of my period and the week after, just those trends that can really help us be able to tell a story of what we're experiencing can be really helpful. Also, what I find helpful in that summary is a current list of medications that you take. And something that I think is often forgotten is what are the things you have already tried and what result did those, did those things provide you? And I also am very nuanced because, for example, someone could say, well, I tried ibuprofen. It didn't work. I tend to try to dig a little deeper. So try to be a little more specific. Like I try taking 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. It was partially helpful, but only for about 30 minutes. And then the pain came right back. I'd rather hear that than just someone say, I took ibuprofen, but it didn't help. Because that's not really the full story, you know? And then the big, big thing is what do you want out of this appointment? I can have a patient give me a full, great history, current list of what medications they are taking how they take it, what they've tried before. And a provider can easily just assume, oh, well, they're looking for me to diagnose the issue and give them some medication to treat it. That might not be what you want out of the appointment. Perhaps all you want out of the appointment is a referral. Like that's, that's why I think it's important to say like, so I'm here today because I'm looking to get a referral to GI. That patient has every right to want to be like, I don't really need you to do anything. I want to see a specialist. <laughs> um, and that's completely understandable. So I don't want to waste the patient's time 
with, well, I think it could be this, 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 and this. You could try this, this. No, if they didn't ask for all of that, I, I need to first provide them with what they actually came there for. And then I can ask them, uh, would you like some medical advice on kind of how to manage these symptoms between now and when you get in to see the specialist? And if I get that consent, then then we can go into providing more, you know. For a lot of your listeners who are dealing with uh, endometriosis and have been dealing with the symptoms for a really long time, it can be hard to try and sum things down into a paragraph, let alone like one page. I, you know, over the last few years have been able to come up with a a one-pager that's a bullet list, but I also have a three-pager, a (laughs) ten-pager, and that's okay. Once I once I slowly chipped away at creating that longer history, it made it easier for me to create shorter summaries for appointments. For those who have that capability to just like slowly kind of take their time and in, in gathering their health issues and trends and summarizing medications they've tried and what side effects it gave them so or why they discontinued it. it. It does help you have something to lean on to be able to pull from to create those shorter summaries for appointments. Uh, at this point, my long version it even includes like cut and pasted imaging report findings. But don't, you know, if you're not able to cut and paste those findings, you can certainly just put a copy of it and bring that to your visit. So if you've had a um, recent ultrasound or MRI or colonoscopy, you could bring a copy of those results to to the appointment. A lot of times providers will sometimes say, oh, you can fax it over ahead of time or you can send it to me via patient portal. I think that's great. Like if you're dealing with a healthcare provider that does have a patient portal or has some form of communication where you can send them that summary and imaging reports, et cetera, before the appointment. I find that really helpful. Not every provider is going to have a chance to look over it the days before your appointment, but I promise you that if they have 10 minutes between the end of their last appointment and seeing you, that's what they're going to be looking over is going to be your, your summary there. All of that is so helpful especially the part about preparing in advance, which can be extremely overwhelming to do. You know, I know the day before the appointment, I get really nervous and then I can't think. Um, So I actually start prepping for my appointment the week before, just like a few minutes every day. For example, I'll ask myself, okay, what is my chief complaint? And then I will write that out for a few minutes and then that's all I'll do for the day. And after I answer that, One question, I am completely overwhelmed and I'm like, okay, you have time. You have more days to finish and you can tackle a question tomorrow. So then maybe the next day I'll work on my symptoms and then the day after that, the goal for my appointment. You know, I just tackle what I can over several days until I'm done. I do the same thing. I do the same exact thing because it's, it's, it's too overwhelming to do it three months in advance. Like, you know, you got an appointment that's really, really far down the line. But it's also too stressful to try to do it the morning of. Don't get me wrong. I have had to do it the morning of before. <laughs> do not recommend. <laughs> um, but even in that case, I had to meet myself where I was and say, Kimather, you've had a really busy or a really taxing week. And just wasn't able to prepare for this appointment, maybe to the degree that you would have liked to. And that's okay. Let's go to the appointment 30 minutes early, just like we normally do. And while you're in the waiting room, see if you can come up with five bulleted points that you just want to make sure you don't forget to mention in this appointment. That really does help me take the pressure off of my off of myself and helps me not beat myself up if uh, if I didn't have my beautiful dissertation, you know, ready to go for their appointment. We all have various levels of literacy. And then we all also have various levels of just trauma that is associated with going to medical visits. And I'm not immune to that. I start having increased insomnia, worsening in pain, 
just because, you know, I have hypertonic pelvic floor dysfunction and I also have neuropathy. And those are two conditions that can definitely um, be exacerbated by stress and muscle tension. So I'm already now starting to get increased pain, lost sleep, and fear because the body keeps score. My body knows that the last time I went to a provider, I had a really painful pelvic pain assessment done, for example. And now I have to mentally prepare myself to deal with possibly having another painful assessment done again. That's why we have to be really kind to ourselves with this process. So maybe one week ahead is enough time for for you and I as veterans in the field of uh, medical appointment prep. But for others, maybe they need it to be a month in advance. Maybe they maybe it's a matter of, you know what? I don't know the trends when it comes to my symptoms because I'm just in pain all the time. So maybe it means starting a little medical like journal a month before the appointment, just to give yourself a little bit of journal prompting of how did I feel today? What was my energy level? What what hurt most today? What activities were really challenging to do, you know, today? I've had to do that as well because before I had um, the ability to really prep pretty thoroughly for appointments, there was a period of time that I was on medications that gave me really bad brain fog, short-term memory loss. Uh, I also had to sleep a lot. This is early on in one of my most severe pain exacerbations where I really didn't have the mental capacity to do what we're talking about right now. I I couldn't type up a summary of what my pain experience has been like. And I had to start with baby steps. And it was actually my pelvic floor physical therapist who suggested, don't worry about having to put together a dissertation or anything before your appointment. Let's just start with just keeping a, a journal each day and spending no more than five minutes summarizing what you felt like that day. And I thought that was such great advice because if I, I could see how if I simmered longer than five minutes, that it'll start to probably really impact me emotionally. And that probably is really tough to do, you know, before going to bed. So I like that she gave me like a five minute timer, like just spend no more than five minutes just summarizing what were you able to do today? What were you not able to do today? Like, for example, if I went for a walk, how long were you able to walk before pain started to slow you down? And then after a while, I had a a few weeks of information like that, that I could look over and I could see what the trends were. And then I could come up with, okay, now let me make this a bullet point list and kind of sum, sum this up for my next appointment. I love that. And it makes me think about how for some people it could be really useful to use one of those symptom tracker apps. They're often so easy to input data into. And then you can just really quickly mark down like, okay, this is how much I peed today. Um, I was nauseous for X number of hours. You know, and the app is actually keeping track of all that data for you over time. And some of them even have these like graphs and can help you draw conclusions and notice trends in your symptoms, even have like downloadable PDFs that you can print out for the doctor. Another thing that I want to say is that I love how you talk about getting specific with our symptoms. It makes me think about when I first got sick and I was only 17 years old and I had very little medical literacy or body literacy. And at the doctor, I told them that my tummy hurt. Because to me, my tummy was my entire abdomen, not just my stomach. Um, And it hurt, right? So then the doctor really focused on my stomach. Um, But in reality, it was my pelvic area that was in pain, not my stomach. And the doctor also didn't point or like have me point to where it hurt. So it took a lot longer um, to get on the right track because at first, The doctor thought that I might have an ulcer because I said my tummy hurt. And comparing that to now, I've learned to be so specific. You know, I've learned to point to exactly where it hurts and to look up online descriptions of pains that I can say, okay, 
I have intermittent stabbing pain here, points to area. I have a pulling sensation here, points to the area. So having a clear idea of what my symptoms are, how long they last, where they are, and how they impact my life. You know, with that doctor, when I said, my tummy hurts, what I really meant was, I get this crushing pelvic pain so intense that I scream and I writhe and I pass out and the pain lasts for 12 hours and I can't go to school and the pain is right here. So that's what I mean when I say I'm in pain. I definitely have had to do that. I had to learn that myself. Like it wasn't in, until I said that my periods keep me debilitated in bed for two days minimum that it clicked a little bit for someone to say, oh, it's not just that I have period pain. It's like, no, I'm, I'm completely debilitated and I am literally just alternating from bed to my toilet for two to three days. That context is necessary to help providers understand really the nature because the scale like zero to 10 pain scale is trash. It's helpful minimally, but what really is helpful for me is when I'm able to get a patient to tell me how is this impacting the quality of your life and how is it impacting your day-to-day activities? Like what day-to-day activities are being altered because of this symptom? Even if it's like just something as simple as like, I've stopped eating these foods or I stopped eating before 4 p.m. That's huge. You literally don't eat till 4 p.m. Because whenever you would eat or drink before that, it seemed to cause this like roller coaster of symptoms. So you just literally don't eat and wait till you get home to eat so that you can deal with your symptoms at home. That's, That's significant and providers should be aware of that. What you said about clarity is so helpful. Why are we going to this appointment? Is it because we're trying to get a diagnosis? Is it because we want to be sure that it's not something fatal? Is it because we want relief? You know, I feel like some of my doctor's appointments have, have really lacked clarity. Sometimes I leave an appointment and I'm like, what was the point of that? Like, what do we do in that 20 minutes? Having clarity on what I'm looking for with a doctor helps me realize when an appointment has become a dead end. If I'm looking for X, but the doctor can only offer me Z, then I need to find a doctor who can offer me X. And I think that's super helpful prior to the appointment to have a clear idea of why we're going to the appointment. And also it helps um, disarm the, a little bit of the anxiety of the appointment if we basically almost have ourselves a mock appointment with ourselves and think out, well, this is what's going on and kind of go through that whole journey with ourselves first and see if we can lead ourselves to to the answer of what it is we we really need. So then by the time we get to the appointment, boom, we can kind of get straight to the point. Another thing too that I, and this really is more so when it comes to like kind of helping to reduce a lot of the anxiety that can sometimes um, derail our appointment a bit. Let's be real, like sometimes we have appointments that make us break out into tears. Sometimes we have appointments that, the provider is um, domineering or you know aggressive, and it can really exaggerate the power dynamic between the provider and the patient. Uh, is that I really do try to stay dressed for a first appointment when I see a provider. Now, let's say that I'm traveling several hours to see a provider, and this this appointment is likely will need to require me removing my clothes for a physical assessment. That's okay. I totally understand that. Um, but that initial introduction and, and that history discussion is one that I think that both people need to have their clothes on for. And I need the provider to be seated uh, as well. I don't like when providers are standing while patients are seated or are laying down on a, on a table per se. There's just little things that sometimes providers aren't mindful of that they shift the mood of the appointment 
if they do certain things that can end up um, making a patient either more nervous, more uncomfortable, and even sometimes just completely like retreating, you know, and now they don't want to give us information um, because we've now put them in a place that perhaps has reminded them of a, a traumatic experience. For me, I'm, I'm always seated, oftentimes seated lower than the patient. If the patient is seated on the table, they actually are naturally higher um, up. And I'm the one seated on a little stool, you know, and I'm looking up to them and ask them for their story. I think that's a dynamic that I really like. Only thing better than that is this, is really us being seated at the same level. I don't wear a white coat because I just don't one. I, I don't think it's necessary. And let's be real, providers we really only wear white coats so we have more pockets. And <laughs> I I have enough pockets, uh, so I don't need a white coat to show that I am the clinician in the room. It's clear who who I am um, in in the room. So. Why not remove that potential barrier that could make it difficult for me to build comfort, you know, for the patient? Uh, and a big thing that I can do is certainly allow them to be fully dressed while they're telling me their story. I'm not a fan of being told to get naked, put on a paper gown, and I literally have never spoke to this provider before. I'll be honest, sometimes I have been prompted to do that. Like maybe the medical assistant comes in, it's like, okay, change into this, you know, and I say, okay, thank you. And I don't, I just let the provider come in and they probably are wondering why she's still dressed. And I was like, hey, I thought we would talk first. It takes me all of 10 seconds to get naked. So I figured let's talk first about my history. Make sure that you get, you know, you have a solid idea of what I'm here for. And then let's determine if a, if a physical exam is, isn't even needed, because it's not always needed in that first visit. If it's a provider that you're planning to be seeing on a regular basis, why not have that first visit be fully dressed so you can first gauge your comfort with that provider before you subject yourself to any physical um, exams or, or anything like that? I find that helpful for, for me as, as a patient to have a better appointment because in my mind, I know that at least I can remove the whole naked factor from my anxiety approaching the appointment. Like I can, I can keep in mind that I can have the appointment and get what I need and ask the questions that I need to ask without having to sit there naked or subject myself to any painful assessments. That gives me a lot of peace of mind to know that I don't have to, I don't have to do those things. I can just simply have a conversation with this provider and then decide if I want, if it's necessary to have a physical exam. Also for us pelvic pain folks, just if you recently had a pelvic pain assessment done by another provider, I bring the note from that provider and say, here's my visit note. Because if nothing much has changed with your body, you don't need to have another assessment done if nothing has changed since that last one. And they could just have that one for their records too. Every once in a while, you might get a little pushback in this area. And I'll, I'll be honest, the one answer that I've given, I don't pull the card often, but when I do get pushback about, well, no, we need you to get undressed, blah, 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 is I do honestly say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I've experienced trauma physical trauma, and I feel safe with my clothes on. I'm going to have the appointment with my clothes on first, and then I'll, I'll decide after I get to meet the provider if I feel comfortable with removing my clothes. I've yet to have anyone, after I say that, give me a hard time. I've never heard anything other than okay after that. I love that you were able to find something that helps you feel most comfortable. You know, I can vividly recall the appointment that I had with the gynecological oncologist about my endometrioma, which we didn't know was an endometrioma at the time, and we thought it could be cancer. And he was explaining about how he would proceed during the surgery if the biopsy was positive for cancer. And I remember that I was super overwhelmed. Like, actually, I was terrified. And I was all alone in the appointment in this flimsy gown, half naked. And there he was talking about probably one of 
the most serious and intimidating conversations of my life. And I had no underwear on and I was in a paper gown. And ever since then, I started bringing a sweater with me, like, you know, those zip up sweaters um, so that I can put it on over the gown. And the sweater only comes off if it needs to, you know, so if they're doing like below the belt, the sweater doesn't even come off. Um, And if it has to come off, it comes off for the exam and then it goes right back on the second the exam is over. Um, And that just really helps me feel more protected and like there's less of a power dynamic, but then also very helpful since I am cold all the time. I tend to wear dresses. Um, that that so a sweater is a great idea. Actually, I'm going to suggest that to some, to to folks. Um, I I like to wear dresses um, because I can still keep my dress on if they're needing to do a pelvic exam or even an abdominal exam. I can hike up a dress as high as you need it. And wearing a dress allows me that even after the exam, I can literally just like bring my dress down and I'm and I'm back to being dressed. And now we can talk about whatever findings you had. And I've also have asked providers after their physical uh, physical exam to step out for a moment so I can gather myself. I've only had to do that a couple times, but I noticed that it was a, there was a trend um, that I was experiencing that I would have the exam. It would be painful, uh, a very painful exam. And they will want to immediately just start talking about net steps. Like, dude, I am not about to register anything that you're you're saying to me because my pelvic pain is now really flared up. I'm sweating. I need a moment. I need to calm down, do some breathing and just, you know, providers just get into their mode and think that they can do a quick exam and just roll right into the next thing and wrap up the appointment. So so now I, f- I feel more empowered that if after a few moments, I'm not feeling like I'm able to even register what they're telling me, I'll ask them, would you mind just stepping out, count, counting to 10 and coming back in? <laughs> yeah, like, because something is literally all, all I need to take a deep breath, settle down my nervous system a little bit so I can better receive what it is that they are trying to tell me. And sometimes I they don't have to leave the room. Sometimes I was like, can you give me a moment? Because it's literally sometimes all I need is five to 10 seconds before we dive into next steps. And I realize it takes a lot of confidence to ask for what you need, but then it also takes a lot of self-exploration to even learn what you need. Um, I didn't realize that I needed that until I kind of looked back and noticed, man, providers always want to jump right into important information when I am sitting here with a mental block because I I just experienced, you know, had a, a, a painful exam. The last time it happened, I remember was with my endo specialist when I met with him and and I told him I suspect I had and I have endometriosis. I also have fibroids. And he did his physical exam definitely one of the top three most painful physical exams that I've done. And he made sure to give me some time between now sitting down and talking about next steps because he knew this next step conversation is about to be real, that he's about to tell me, I highly suspect that you have severe endometriosis. I think that these this is the next steps that we should take, blah, blah, blah. And really was thankful that he stepped out and gave me some time uh, realizing that I am now flared up and a little bit shaken, you know, my sympathetic you know, system is kicking in, thinking I should just run out this door right now. <laughs> he, he gave me the time that I would need to even be able to register what he's going to tell me. I think about how vulnerable we can be during these appointments, how it can bring up past trauma, even if the appointment is going well. You know, I think about how many times I've shut down during my appointments, how I've noticed that my body language is really closed off uh, because I'm scared, right? Like I'm sitting with my arms crossed and my legs crossed, especially if I'm just wearing the, the paper gown. And I talk very quietly. Sometimes I answer just like yes or no um, in very few words. And it's hard to remember that I'm worthy of care. 
right? It's hard to remember that I'm worthy of being listened to, that my symptoms are important, that I'm important. When you've been gaslit one, two, five, ten times over the course of having a chronic illness, it can be really hard to find your voice. I think it's helpful to bring someone with you to your appointments, but that's not a luxury that we all have. You know, I've been going to my all my appointments alone since I was 17 years old. Having someone in the appointment can be really helpful because they can mention something that you forget or they can guide the conversation. They can talk on your behalf if you're scared. They can advocate for you, stand up for you. You know, sometimes I leave the doctor's appointment and it's like I didn't talk about the things that I want to, even though I waited for weeks or maybe months to have the appointment because like I just shut down or I started crying. And when I leave there, I have to really remind myself that I have been through so much with this illness and it's been really traumatic and it's okay that I started crying. It's a natural, normal response, even if it's an unwanted response. It's natural. And so I really just try to bring gentleness with, to myself. And like I said, since I go to these appointments alone, you know, preparation has become so important to me to really make the most of these appointments. So I will go ahead. I'll write down everything. And then I'll bring like a paper that I can hand to the doctor. And if they want me to talk about it, sometimes I just read from it. Um, and I practice in advance, right? So I'll talk in the mirror like the day before the appointment. I'll just read over and over my piece of paper like 10 times just so that it flows more naturally. But yeah, I just remind myself constantly like you're doing a good job, right? You're doing the best you can. And I think when I approach my medical care with kindness towards myself, I feel a lot less pressure to do some epic job advocating for myself or getting myself care. And I just accept where I'm at now and that I truly am doing my best, even if I'm closed off and crying and stumbling over my words. Um, and I, I should feel proud of that because this disease is impossibly hard. And the truth is that even if we do all the practices and tips that Kimather is talking about today, we can still have a horrible appointment because of systemic problems within healthcare or because the medical professional has biases against one of the identities that we hold, or maybe our provider is just having a horrible day and it has nothing to do with us, but we get the brunt of their bad mood. And maybe ourselves too, you know, we're exhausted. We don't feel good. Maybe we didn't, we couldn't sleep last night. We couldn't eat this morning because we felt sick and nauseous and it's hard to go to these doctor's appointments and we don't have to beat ourselves up for the way that we respond to our trauma. I'm so glad that you have been able to come to that and really be able to approach appointments both pre and post with compassion for yourself throughout the whole process. That also helps take some pressure off of oh my gosh, I need this appointment to go perfectly well, or I'm just going to keep spiraling into this awful disease. And we can very easily get caught up in that and blame ourselves when the appointment doesn't go well. I've done that so many times. It's one of the drawbacks of being both a practitioner and a patient is I sometimes when um, an appointment doesn't go well, I blame myself so easily because I'm like, you should know better. You should have studied this more. You should have known what to, you know, what to do to redirect this appointment so that it would go better, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Kamathar, you were not the practitioner in that appointment. You were the patient and you are not responsible for being both the patient and the clinician. And Unfortunately, I've had to do that many times in appointments when you're dealing with chronic illnesses that most providers are very unfamiliar with. I have often been both clinician and patient in the room, and it's unacceptable. But now I'm having to really learn that not only is that re remarkably unfair to just put it on me because they know I'm a a clinician. Um, but is, what about for people who are not clinicians and they are patients? 
that should not mean that the provider can be let off the hook with doing their job. And also, like you said, there's biases that definitely I'm not able to do much about. And there sometimes are surprises. Like I, I had a surprise pelvic exam once that made me afraid to go to a provider for a long time. I, I saw a urologist. I suspected that the urologist was just going to look at like my urethra and he totally like did a like bimanual dance so like inserted his fingers in my vagina unexpectedly and I was traumatized <laughs> by that experience. Um, so that's probably another tip that I can add is that if a physical exam is going to happen, uh, or, you know, it's time to move to a physical exam portion of an appointment, I do sometimes ask, especially with a new provider, I definitely ask, what does your physical exam entail? Can you walk me through it as you do everything? And honestly, no provider should question, should question that. They could easily say, Oh, I'm going to listen to your lungs and your heart. You know, I'm going to look at, into your ears, blah, blah, blah. Or I'm going to do an abdominal exam first, listen to your bowel sounds. Then I think I'm going to also do a rectal exam as well. It's going to involve me putting a small um, scope into your rectum so I can visualize any potential injuries or lesions. Like They should be able to tell you what they're going to do before they do it because that is called informed consent. <laughs> you should know what they're going to do. I personally am most comfortable if they kind of talk through what they're doing as they're doing it. Not everybody maybe wants that or needs that, but I personally um, do benefit when they tell me what they're doing or what they're about to do. Like if I'm about to suddenly feel something, a different sensation, you need to tell me that I'm about to feel that sensation. So I politely ask, sometimes I preface it with, I've experienced a lot of trauma in my pelvic area, unfortunately, but I find it really helpful if the provider just walks me through what they're doing as they do it. And they kind of give me a little heads up if they're about to do something that's going to create a new sensation, because please keep in mind that I have a lot of pelvic pain generators. So something that you might think isn't painful for most people it possibly could be painful for me. And I might add a little joke on the end of that and say, so unless you want me to jump off your table and kick you in the face, <laughs> you, you might want to just give me a heads up. <laughs> you know, like, um, and, you know, I've, I've not yet had a provider who was not receptive to that and was like, okay. Now I have experienced providers who say, okay, but you can tell they're not used to doing that. So they kind of had to like train themselves a bit to say what they're doing as they're, as they're doing it. And that's good. They should learn how to do that um, because that's a, it's probably a practice that I'm not the only patient who would benefit from them doing that. So I've gotten comfortable with, with speaking up and asking for that too. And also you're supposed to have a chaperone offered to you in the room if you're having any type of in like um genital or breast exam or rectal exam if they don't offer it it's okay to ask for it then you're like would you mind if i have an, a female staff person in the room as well during our exam very easy question and they have to try to abide by it kimather as a practitioner and a patient tell us how can we refuse a medication that the doctor offers us that we already know that we don't want to take? Because it can be really hard to say no sometimes, um, especially if the doctor seems to get mad or pressures us, like, have an open mind, right? Or we know that maybe if we say no, the doctor might drop us from their care, and they're the only doctor that we can see. So there's a a few things that can be helpful in these moments. So first, you don't have to decide on a medication at the moment it's offered to you. So let's say the provider, they've said, oh, okay, I think that you should get on this medication. I would recommend with all the kindness of a Southern Belle saying, thanks so much. 
Okay, I'm really excited to learn more about that medication. You know, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this medication and how I may react to it. So let me think about this, do a little research and just confirm that this medication, you know, is, is something I'm really comfortable with starting and I'll get back to you. That is something that if you have, of course, the luxury of this is a, a provider that you can see again in the next few weeks or they have a patient portal or patient messaging system where you can send a message uh, with any follow-up questions about the medication because sometimes just having them not right in front of you helps a lot. So that if after a week of doing some research, you have some questions, you can send them a message and say, Hi, Dr. Such and Such. Thanks so much again for telling me about Et's medication. I have a few questions about it first before starting it. Give them those questions and let's see how they how are they going to react to answering those questions. Now, if they don't respond, you never refuse the medication. They just didn't do their part to answer the questions that you needed to make an informed decision about starting that medication. If they do answer, and they provide answers that actually does help you make a more informed decision, then you can say, oh, okay, I'm comfortable with starting this medication or, okay, I'm not comfortable with starting this medication and, and this is why, or I don't think that this medication is a good choice for me and this is why. Now, that's really when it comes to like a medication that we just don't know anything about, but what about those times when we're offered a med that is like a hard pass? Like for me, Lupron and like Orlissa, like those meds are hard passes for me. I've been offered those medications multiple times and I don't just say no. A flat out no will probably get documented as a refusal. What I do instead is that I say, you know, unfortunately, I had a really tough experience with medications like that, or let's let's say for the sake of Lupron and Orlissa, for example, with oral contraceptives, which are much lower dose type, like not even as strong, you know, medications as Lupron and Orlissa, but being able to share that you've had, um, you know, negative side effects with hormonal um, medications. You don't have to go into a whole lot of detail. I, I tend to try and keep it short and just say, Unfortunately, I've had some adverse reactions to hormonal medications with treating my condition. And I say the term adverse reaction very intentionally because that is a term that all clinicians are taught to pay attention to because we have to document adverse reactions. And some people think, well, what what, what is an adverse reaction? Isn't that just only when I have like a really severe like Drug reaction? Absolutely not. An adverse reaction is any undesired effect of a drug or treatment or anything. It can range from mild to severe to life-threatening. If you say I have that this caused an adverse reaction or a drug similar to this caused an adverse reaction, they're supposed to document as an adverse reaction and really move on to other options. So I would state your concern about experiencing an uh, a adverse reaction to other hormonal treatments, just for the sake of this example, and say, what are some non-hormonal options that you have that I could consider instead? So that's one. Uh, another option, too, is that you can share your concerns. Let's say that you've never tried the drug, but you've heard of a lot of negative issues with taking that drug. Share your concerns. I think that they are warranted. I, I want to know if your sister or your friend or several people that you know has taken a, a medication that I'm recommending and it caused scary, irreversible changes that you know you would not be able to tolerate. Now, it really does depend on the provider on how they're going to receive those concerns. If your concerns are being dismissed, then I go back to, to my first point of deferring decision making and go back to, okay, well, thanks so much. You know, I'm going to, I'll learn some more about the medication and I'll, I'll get back to you when I'm ready to start it. 
they'll call in the medication to the pharmacy probably and uh, I won't pick it up. I know, I know I'm not going to take the medication, <laughs> but I go back to just deferring the decision because I'd rather have a non-decision or a decision pending, kind of have it left off there than just a refusal. Now, I don't want to make it sound like that you don't have a right to refuse. You absolutely do have a right to refuse medication that you're being offered. And you have a right to ask what are the uh, what are some other options? Because very rarely is one drug the only option. Very rarely. If they say that this is the only drug option that you have, then I ask, well, what are my non-pharmaceutical options? Like I really, I really challenge the provider to make sure that, that they are actually presenting you with informed consent, full consent. What are all my options? And if they said, well, I don't, I don't know, or um, there's really not anything else that can be done but this, then I, I have a good idea that I'm dealing with someone who actually really doesn't know or doesn't want to. So I go back to the, thank you so much then. And there's a good chance that I'm going to be looking for a different provider. Let's say that you were put on a medication, you took it, it made you feel like crap. And you are like, I just, I'm not able to handle this medication. It sucks. I hate how it makes me feel. So you go back to the doctor and you say, this medication, it's awful. I want to get off of it. I've had people tell me that their doctor is like, is telling them, oh no, stay, stay on it. Just stick with it. It's better than nothing. So I go back again to the adverse reaction piece. And a lot of what we talked about earlier about describing our experience, I do that for that medication. So for example, I, I was put on a medication that gave me just really bad brain fog short-term memory loss. Like it was no joke. I felt like I had like dementia. Thankfully, this was before I was practicing as a nurse practitioner. <laughs> um, and I uh, remember I, I flat out um, used the same language. Like I said here, I said, unfortunately, I'm having an adverse reaction to this medication that I'm not able to tolerate. I had to stop taking it or I'm needing to taper off of this medication. I use descriptors. I tell them exactly how it's impacting my quality of life. A big one that gets providers' attention is when it's keeping you from work. Um, so when I let them know I am unable to work, I cannot work on this medication. I'm, not, I'm unable to drive myself to appointments. I really provide very clear descriptors of what that medication is doing and why it's an adverse reaction um, so that they can document it. And if you're not sure what kind of provider you're dealing with here, it's okay to articulate. Could you make sure to document in my in the note that I had this adverse reaction to this medication? Because I really want to just keep track of what works for me and what doesn't, just to be sure that, that it's being documented overarching issue for all of these recommendations and scenarios is the importance of informed consent. You really should know what you're taking, what the side effects are, what to expect from that medication, how long you need to take the medication before you're expected to start seeing results. And you have a right to ask those questions. Providers should be answering those questions. And if they can't, I defer back to, okay, thanks so much. Maybe I'll ask my pharmacist, you know, at my pharmacy about it, or I'll do a little research about it first and defer that decision. You should not feel like you have to say yes to everything that your provider um, recommends to you because that's not true informed consent. Yeah, I think there could be multiple situations that we're facing when offered medication. And as you said, it's our right to say, well, I'm not sure about that medication. I'm hesitant about it. But we may be nervous that then providers are going to label us noncompliant or combative. And then write that down in our chart. And then it's going to follow us around that we're noncompliant or that we're combative. And this can hurt our ability to get future care. 
This can sour our relationship with this provider who may be the only one in our area or in our insurance plan. You know, and in my experience, sometimes providers, they just like cannot take no when you say that you don't want a drug. You know, they'll, they'll be like, well, why not? And you'll say something like, well, I heard it has a lot of side effects. And they'll be like, well, you should try it to see your side effects. And you're like, well, I mean, I don't think the potential benefits outweigh the potential risks. So I'm not interested. But it's really hard to have that conversation and hard to say no. You know, when I think about when I took Depo Provera when I was 20, I had a lot of side effects, like a lot, like so many. And I was so miserable and it was intolerable. And so in the next appointment, she was like, well, do you want to take the depo shot again? And I said, no, definitely not. Like, no, because <laughs> uh, it's had so many side effects, especially on my mental health. And then she was like, yeah, but look at the bright side. You're not having diarrhea anymore. And I was like, well, okay, yeah, that's true. But like the trade-off in symptoms versus side effects is not worth it to me. How dare that provider also like actually feel like they get to decide what um, risk and benefits that you should be able to tolerate. That is your right as the patient. I, I get to decide as the patient what risk or what side effects I'm willing to deal with in order to control the the problem that that medication is designed to treat, not the provider. That's not up to them. And you should not have to. I wish that this, of course, was not the case. I wish that even conversations like this were, weren't even necessary. Because if we, if we had providers who, who actually did provide informed consent and would listen to their patient, and be able to provide patients with the necessary education for them to make their own informed decision of what risk benefit that they're willing to to tolerate. We wouldn't even have to have to, you know, navigate these these things. And I'm so sorry that you experienced that because what a way to also just completely act like your experience wasn't valid. Yeah, Literally, scary. your mental health was not was yeah. of was of little importance, you know, it's, to that provider and how it impacted your life. I was so young at the time and new to all of this, and I was so scared to go against what the doctor was recommending. And when you're put in a situation where you feel like you have to defend yourself or you have to argue with the doctor so that they stop discounting your lived experience. That is so uncomfortable. You know, it's your body and you don't have to put anything in your body that you're not comfortable with. And that should just be a given, not something that you have to justify. You know, when you're telling them, okay, I look, I don't want to take any more hormones due to all the side effects that they've had on me. And they're sitting there telling you, yeah, but try the implant. Okay, that didn't work. Try the patch. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, try the ring. Try the shot. And you're like, listen to my words. I am done with hormones. (laughs) So I love what you said about are there any non hormonal options? Are there any non pharmaceutical options? And maybe for this doctor, they can't offer you those options. And that's important to know. You want X. But the doctor can't offer you X. Absolutely. Like that, that's a, it's a really good way to reveal really what this provider can, can give you is when you actually challenge them to provide you with all the options. For, for me, it is ideal for me to provide people with multiple options because if I give them multiple options and the pros and cons of them all and give them time to think about it, they're not only more likely to make a decision that they feel confident about, but they're more likely to stick with it and keep me in the loop with it instead of me just saying, get on this medication. And then when they don't want to be it on anymore, they, they just ghost me, you know, because that's what I used to do. When I was on Depo, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, and when it felt like Depo was just like turning on me, like, I mean, it was giving me such awful side effects. And the provider was like, well, Guess you're I guess you're okay with having those painful periods back. 
And I was like, excuse me. I mean, yeah, but I was young. I was maybe like 21, 22 at the time. And I was like, yeah. So I got the shot one more time. But then I ghosted that heifer. I never came back. (laughs) So I, I felt guilted into getting the shot one more time. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, I shouldn't have did that. I felt pressured to get that shot yet again, even though I knew that I think I should be done with the shot. And knowing that I'm dealing with a provider who is, is so comfortable with invalidating my symptoms and, and my experience. And even to me, what felt almost like berating me, you know, I, just them saying, oh, I guess you're okay with your painful periods coming back then as if now I want to inflict pain on myself, come on now, you know, I, I, I just need a different option here, or I need perhaps you to do your due diligence and diagnostically figuring out why am I having these painful periods instead of just trying to control it with, with birth control. So I, I have a, a history of ghosting doc- doctors um, when I was younger, when I didn't have the confidence to speak up for myself. I would just ghost them and then not not go to a doctor for several years until I absolutely had to and then start from scratch. And I guarantee that you have listeners who have made the choice to just keep starting from scratch with providers because it was, e- it was easier to do that to try to make any progress talking to a provider who was insensitive and not willing to actually listen you know, to the patient. So the sooner that providers realize that if we can provide patients with all their options, including the option of not coming to me and me referring them out, the more that they can feel comfortable to involve you in their decision process so that you can continue to support them throughout that process. When someone tells me that they have a I mean, my patients aren't calling it adverse reaction because that's not a term that is just like very common, you know, amongst just the general public. But when they tell me I stopped taking that medicine, I ask questions and it's not in a why, why did you stop taking that medicine? It's tell me more. Instead of sitting there berating them or just simply writing down noncompliance in their chart. You know, I, I express concern and true desire to want to learn what they experience and can sometimes be a little bit of a journey from them to say, I just felt really bad on it, you know, and I'm like, you know, how so? Like, so that's what providers are supposed to do. If you have a, a certain reaction, they actually are supposed to explore that reaction and figure out why did that happen instead of sitting here berating you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that saying this drug made me feel bad or this drug isn't right for me, that should be enough. You know, it should be enough to honor and respect. We may not be able to pinpoint why the drug isn't right for us, but we still know that it's not what we want. And I want to go back to what you said about the guilt, because I certainly think that many of us feel guilted into taking a medication. And talk about how inappropriate it is for a provider to make a patient feel guilty, even if they didn't mean to, right? Like inadvertently, or to make them feel like they don't have the space to say no. You know, because if they do say no, they feel like there could be a negative impact on that patient-provider relationship. For me, it's always been really hard to say no. I have a lot of trauma in my background, and fawning is like my go-to trauma response. And I was such a people pleaser. And I just, I wanted always to say yes. I wanted to please you. I wanted you to like me. And that's pretty much how I lived until I was like 30. So it was really hard for me to speak up for myself to say no, especially when I felt like the doctor was badgering me or invalidating my lived experience. And that's where I've learned to take a step back and to have that self-compassion. Um, And of course, if you have a crappy provider, self-compassion is not going to make that provider any less crappy. If you feel frustrated after your appointment, self-compassion is not going to change your frustration, but it can help you to change the way that you feel about yourself. And for me, 
that has been so helpful in these appointments. Like, yes, I am angry. And no, I didn't get the outcome that I need. I still need to seek care. But I don't have this extra layer on top of all that of feeling ashamed of myself. You know, because in these appointments, like I cry, I stumble over my words, I close my body language, I don't express myself well. It's not pretty, it's not my best side, but you know what? I still feel proud of myself because I refused a medication that I didn't want and I advocated for myself in the best way that I could. And I think that's huge. So thank you, Kimather, so much for speaking with us today. In part two, we're going to discuss biases that patients can face when seeking medical care. And in part three, we'll discuss the systemic problems in the overall healthcare system. I hope you enjoyed this episode of In 16 Years of Endometriosis. I'd love for you to help me spread this information by sharing my podcast in your social networks or leaving me a review in your podcast app. For more information about endometriosis, you can follow me on Instagram at in16yearsofendo or go to my website in16years.com. If you want to support the hard work that goes into making these episodes, you can buy me a coffee through my website. The music on my podcast is called Heavenless by Epic Inspirational Adventure, provided by Jamendo. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.